This is Mentor, the podcast to destigmatize mental health. I'm Bobby Temps. Each Thursday, we delve into a factor or condition that influences the mind and how to better manage it. With special guests and stats you can trust, here we go. This week, we're talking all things BPD, which is short for Borderline Personality Disorder, with friend of the podcast, Sarah Cardwell. So before we get into that, I've got a quick definition from the NHS. Borderline personality disorder is a disorder of mood and how a person interacts with others. It's the most commonly recognized personality disorder. And so in the episode, you'll hear a lot more about Sarah Cardwell's experience with this. She's also been quite active with us in the campaign we've got going at the moment. So she'll um, talk a little bit more about that. And... I've just got one stat for this episode in terms of what we talk about with the campaign as well, and that is from the Equality and Human Rights Commission in Wales. Um, It was a study carried out where they found 46% of people in Wales think that those who have experienced depression are unsuitable to work as primary school teachers. I just particularly wanted to highlight that as an example of the type of stigma we try and battle on this show but also because it's so relevant for the campaign because getting mental health education in schools isn't just about the students. If it's talked about more, if future generations are growing up with a better understanding, it will also have great positive effects for others, including teachers. If more of their colleagues have the training and the understanding because they have to teach it, they're less likely to discriminate in the workplace, to consider things like depression, which can be very mild and people can absolutely um, recover from and manage as a reason that they wouldn't be suitable for their job. It's, it's not okay. And so that's just something I wanted to bring up before we get into the episode. So in just a moment, we'll get into BPD with the wonderful Sarah Cardwell. But first, this week's Audible Recommendation. I'm recommending How to Argue with a Cat by Jay Henricks. This is a book that, as a cat lover, I was particularly drawn to. My mum actually recommended it to me. It's basically all about um, the power of persuasion, and it's going from an angle of... It sounds so weird to say, but it's going from an angle of understanding how cats in a way persuade and in a way convince humans to do things and to look after them and how that can actually be applied to better understand people and how to negotiate with them. So for me, I was quite interested in this book from a business perspective, but I think having read it, whether it's from a business um, perspective or whether just in day-to-day life, becoming more persuasive, getting your opinions and arguments across better, um, it's really insightful. And obviously, if you're a cat lover as well, you'll love it for two reasons. And so the details for this book are in the description. And as always, you can get your first book with Audible for free by visiting bit.ly slash mentalbooks. I'm Sarah Cardwell. I'm 35, mum of two from Sheffield. Um, And I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder earlier this year in January. 
I've been under the mental health team since I was 16, so almost 20 years now. Slipping in and out of the system with depression, anxiety, nobody really pinpointing exactly what the problem was or what sort of things could help. So I've just been on Prozac since I was 16. That's it. Um, Antidepressants, there was no therapy. And then just over the last three or four years, a number of things had happened to me that started triggering for me to sort of really chase up the mental health team. All right, so we won't get into that quite yet. So going back to when you were 16, Mm -hmm. what sort of led you into that? Were you aware of mental health symptoms? No, I just felt very low in mood. Mm -hmm. Um, My parents had recently separated. Um, I I moved out of home. I felt very... um, lost in my identity so I think a lot of people feel like that at 16 but it was more than that have moved out of home no at six exactly so to be living on my own I was living with um basically my family prior to that had been quite religious um so I was living with various people from the church um and generally every other month I was moving from different people's houses till eventually I got my own house and just went to the doctor saying, just don't feel right. And they were like, here's some tablets. There you and go. And did you have a diagnosis of that? No, nothing. Um, they mentioned depression. They said that they thought I was probably depressed because my parents had separated and I was um, confused. And that was it, really. At 16, nobody had really talked to me about depression or mental health of any kind. Mm-hmm. And I was just happy to get some tablets and kind of do as they said it never questioned I never questioned taking them never worried about it but no diagnosis was given other than depression sorry um and they just saw me once every six months that then became once every year just to monitor that my blood pressure was all right on the medication and so through that you were just taking the same medication just taking the same medication um Occasionally I'd stop it myself thinking, oh, actually I feel better. And then a few months later I'd go back to the doctor, they just put me back on it. But there was never any investigation into um, therapy or diagnosis or even at that point, even a psychiatrist. Um, nothing like that was brought into it till I was much older. Seems really odd, particularly to put you on medication for those lengths of time without... Um, reviewing it well just just kind of just left on it for as if um as if that was the solution and there was nothing else that needed to be done um and like I said every time I went back having eventually stopped myself thinking you know I've been taking these for three years now maybe I can reduce the dose I'd go back and they'd just say no you're feeling bad again because you've stopped taking them start taking them again Mm -hmm. um and I guess there was other situations with the fact that I was moving around, so I was in different doctors occasionally. Mm-hmm. So maybe there was a lack of consistency, so people just took me on on whatever they'd seen before and nobody really stopped to investigate how I see it now, looking back, a 16-year-old girl who was living on her own and had just been put on medication and then left to it to um yeah, till I start, till I have my first daughter. Yeah, that does seem strange. It's one of those things that I'd like to think that it's moved forward a lot since then. I'd hope so, yeah, um, I'd hope so. But I wonder if maybe your age might have been a factor as well to a certain extent. Maybe they 
they just wanted you to be stable and they didn't want to sort of change things? I think so. And I mean, even at that point, I was 17 when I took an overdose. Um, Even at that point, though, nobody ever tried to take that any further at that point. Nobody ever tried to assess whether I needed to go down a different avenue or whether I needed regular monitoring or anything. And like you said, it might be the fact that this is going back 20 years ago now. Mm -hmm. And more recently, when I'd taken an overdose, um, steps were put in place very, very quickly. I had a very different experience. So I do think we've come a lot... I don't think we're by any means all the way there, but I do think in 20 years we've come a a very long way from the treatment that I had back then. That is reassuring to Yes. (laughs) Good. And it's good to hear you've had that personal contrast of those two examples. And so if you fast forward a little bit, where was it that you then started to have more clarity about what was going on? So um, about four years ago now... um, I'd had um, an argument with my mum over Christmas, just a really um, drunk too much, um, had a really big row with her. Family Christmas. Yeah, just like a really bad kind of Christmas, but to the point where I'd... I was really unsure as to what I'd done wrong. I I couldn't quite pinpoint it. Everybody else seemed to know that I'd messed up and I couldn't quite work out where I'd gone wrong. Um, and my mum took me to the GP, um, convinced that I'd got bipolar disorder, um, and took me along. And that was the start of three years, um, then being assessed every three to six months mm-hmm. until finally three years later they diagnosed me with borderline personality disorder. So it still took three years from that point to the diagnosis. That's pretty crazy. We recently did an episode on bipolar Mm. and, you know, one of the stats of that was um, in terms of how long it takes people to be diagnosed. I wonder if maybe that was a factor, but I imagine it's, you know, it's similar to a certain extent depending how common or well-known certain conditions are. Yeah, Um, definitely. I imagine you coming in as a 16-year-old there's there is certain symptom crossover with various mental illnesses and so maybe you were a lot more likely to be given something broader and more common absolutely yeah yeah yeah. and I think that especially 20 years ago um depression was sort of the thing that people knew of mental health that was kind of it and even if I think back to when my mum um four years ago I think she got bipolar out of sort of the popular trend of it almost that suddenly everybody was talking about this new mental health yeah, so condition. it was like the recent one she, she was on. just like oh it must be that that Sarah's got um but there are some similarities with that and borderline personality disorder so I can see where um and the psychiatrist that finally diagnosed me had said that those were the two that he was debating between for mm-hmm. over the three-year period so there was some crossover to do with mood and I think the biggest difference is with bipolar, your moods are much longer and take much longer to rise and to drop. Whereas with borderline personality disorder, I can be up and down in the space of 10 minutes or a couple of hours. I can be on top of the world and at the bottom of the world all in the same day. Yeah, absolutely. And there's not that same kind of binary sense because no. that's where the bi and bipolar comes yeah, from. Yeah, yeah this idea of like two modes almost yeah yeah um whereas my understanding of borderline personality disorder is that 
there are many emotions at play yes. and they're coming in extreme from different angles Definitely. often at the same time yeah absolutely it's just like spaghetti junction m25 <laughs> going on in there so yeah. yeah definitely and so did you have when you got that diagnosis did you have an idea it might be something like that or was that kind of an aha moment of that must be it so they'd mentioned briefly um, about six months before that they were debating between bipolar and borderline and they were getting me to do things like mood journals and diaries. And the more I looked and researched it, I did think that that was the um, more likely of the two, the borderline, just yeah. with the fact of the such swinging the moods and how quickly and frequently I could change and the racing thoughts, like the ideas and the things that would pop up. So when they finally gave me the diagnosis, I think it was a combination of things. I was really relieved that finally somebody had labelled me, even though I'd always not wanted to be labelled, but it just felt like there was a box ticked somewhere that there was a reason yeah, for it. Yeah, particularly when it had been ongoing for, for so such long. a long time, yeah. Um, but then I also felt like, disappointed because at the same time as telling me they said we know the perfect treatment for you it's dbt like this is it's handwritten for you can absolutely get better and but there's a two-year wait Mm -hmm. and i just sort of at that point is when i had what i'd say was like a real kind of breakdown for a month i just felt like they'd given me a two-year sentence in prison or whatever i just sort of went home and didn't leave the house for nearly four weeks yeah, and just I'll quickly insert there yeah. for the listeners in terms of DBT. Um, my understanding is it's drawn from CBT, which is a type of counselling, yeah. um, whereas DBT is often used for borderline personality disorders or other personality disorders because it's designed to be potentially less emotionally triggering. Yes. So for those people that can have more emotional spikes, it's a way to kind of empower people with similar cbt tools but in a way that's to describe it almost no, easier to digest <laughs> yeah yeah no i think that's right um i tried cbt and it really triggered me quite considerably um, and that's when i started um with diazepam quite mm-hmm. a lot because i just found that every little exercise that i needed to do made me so much more anxious and they'd give me a tiny little task and it would just become this mammoth thing to me. So I really struggled with CBT. Yeah, yeah. I know for lots of people that um, I'm friends with either on social media or that I've met outside of it, they found it really, really helpful. So Yeah, absolutely. And this is really the importance of, you know, unfortunately we are, we do have a mental health care system where, I think there's a lot of pressure put on the patients to understand what they're going through. But for better or for worse, you know, the tools out there, there's the Mm -hmm. internet to read up on these things because DBT is less known about. But for many people, it it is exactly the right one. And so now you've had the diagnosis and you have like more clarity of what you're going through. Um, How have you found in terms of, because I think it is still so often a misunderstood condition yeah so how have you found talking to like friends and family about it do they generally seem to understand are you able to express well what you're going through I think that um a lot of my friends and family have looked into it themselves and they can definitely identify symptoms and factors and be like yep I recognize that in terror and generally I've had 
like really lots of support and encouragement. I don't think anybody still in my own head, I don't think anybody can understand it completely because I just think there are days still when even my closest friends or family are still extremely frustrated by the thoughts that I have in my own head. And it's almost like they go, just stop thinking that. And I think they, they just don't quite get that you're not in control of every aspect of it. Um, so I don't think they'll ever completely understand, but I think I've been really fortunate that they do their very best to understand as much as they can. Yeah, that's really great to hear. But it's it's so true. I think that's pretty universal with mental mental illness is that it it's ultimately an internal battle. Yeah. And so I know for me personally, there's a lot of days where I don't even know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, you know, I have to check in with myself and be like, you know, are you feeling low because of depression or are you feeling low because you've not eaten? And I have to, like, do the calculations. Well, you ate that many hours ago. Yeah, yeah. And, you know. No, at 100%, I think it's... I often... One of the big symptoms of it is not trusting your own sort of sense of judgment, and that's the biggest thing I struggle with. So I constantly look for validation from other people, whether it's eating or whether it's making a decision or anything at all, really, like the processes that have gone on for today for me to just come down on this train mm-hmm. must have asked 50 people to say, do you think it's a good idea we get on the train on my own now that you can't come because my sister was meant to come again and couldn't make it? And I just can't seem to make those decisions on my own. So it frustrates family as well because I'm relying on them mm-hmm. to make those decisions for me. But then sometimes I won't always follow their advice. So I can understand why they get frustrated. Yeah, and I understand how that's a difficult balance for you because Mm. you want their support Mm -hmm. and their reassurance, but then also it's still your life. Yeah, absolutely. And so you still want the power to To, deviate from what they say. Absolutely. Um, No, that's really interesting. And so I remember um, you put up a little video recently kind of introducing who you are, and we shared that on Twitter if you want to find that. So you mentioned in that you were going to see Wicked and London. Yes. Um, I thought that might be quite a good example of kind of almost like a day in the life of like how it is living with BPD. Could you talk us through that? Yeah, no. So um, we'd stayed at a hotel the night before, which was fine. Mm -hmm. um, But then we went into London on Saturday and my husband was in the process of driving to London, checking to the hotel, going to the theatre, Go and have something to eat. That's the only thing that thinks have a few drinks. That's his entire process. Mm-hmm. And it was a really big deal for me because from the minute we approached London, um, my anxiety started with the amount of cars that were around. So yeah. the fact that there was three or four lanes everywhere and everybody seemed to be going different places. Um, I was getting really frustrated at the sat-nap for not and were you driving no he was driving driving, I wasn't driving I was getting really anxious Um, so then he found a car parking place and he was um, like oh yeah this will be fine it was a guy that in London I think they have these a lot where you just go and pull up and pay a guy in a car lot (laughs) I was just like had to come out of the whole area and just stand to the side because it was really worrying me Um, got to checking in and I was just drenched in sweat and my husband's like, no, I'll do it. And I was like, no, this is really important. I've got to do it. And I think that's half the problem sometimes. I 
want to achieve certain things. So it's good that I push myself, but sometimes I don't just think, actually, would it be a big deal if he'd have checked in? So there was a few problems with the checking of the room, which probably were nothing to anybody else, but it was just a different card that had been used. Um, and I got into the room and just said, yep, can't go. Like, I was just like, yeah, we're not going now. And he was like, okay. And my husband is dead good at just um, giving me time mm-hmm. at that point. Um, he used to just be like, no, we are going and cause a big row, but now he just knows I need... Yeah, and Ten I can minutes. see, again, that comes back to what you said about the kind of, like, reliance slash independence thing. Of, yeah. Then for you, because that's kind of, in a way, like an attack, yes. you're going to want to push, push that away back. and Absolutely. be super independent. That's it. So um, within five, ten minutes, I'd cooled down, reapplied my lipstick, um, and we went and got on the tube. I was anxious, um, but when we got in our seats... Um, I just really enjoyed it and for the first time in a long time I didn't move from my seat so my husband went to get drinks at intervals and I just didn't want to go anywhere I was quite happy where I was um but I really enjoyed the show and I related so much it, it sounds ridiculous now I didn't know the story before but I related so much to the fact that she felt she was different and she was this green character and everybody else lived in this normal world and she couldn't work out why she was different. So there was a lot of relatable to that actual performance that we went to anyway. Um, and then I was fine until everybody left and then it gets really busy and noisy There's again no and I really find noise a big deal, like lots of noise of like different conversations and stuff. That's one of the things, never heard voices and I've not ever been in that position but I, I almost get distracted by hearing so much noise, so I'm trying to listen to 40 different conversations and I get what I call my cloudy head on and I just freeze, I just can't do anything. So we took a few seats down, but we stopped and waited till everybody else had left. Um, and then we went and had something to eat and I was hot and sweaty and sticky as I tend to be these days in this weather. But we had um, a nice meal. Um, we were going to go for drinks afterwards, but I just felt like I'd done enough for that day. Um, and he tried to swing it round and say, mm-hmm. should we just chat? And I was like, no, I need to get on the tube and go home now. I've done Yeah, and you would have known wicked. as well, even getting the tube and going back is stressful enough as in itself. Oh, I was, yeah, I was... Re- and I, I think that was the other thing. I was quite anxious about that in the... Like, all the way through... When we'd first got on the tube, I wasn't that worried. But it was like, the, do you know when you go on holiday and you're already thinking about the journey back when you first arrived? Mm-hmm. It was a little bit like that. So once we'd first arrived at Wicked, I was already thinking about the tube on the way home and would it be busier? Yeah. And would there be strangers around that are worrying me or would I feel anxious or would it be darker? Sort of all those kind of things were constantly in my head for the whole day. And the difference in knowing that my husband is just watching the show, eating his food and having a drink, and I've got yeah. a million other things that are floating around. Um, and it's interesting, that example, because in that case, your thoughts are causing the worry. It's yeah. not It's not even anything that's happening in that point. It's the, um, for me, it's definitely the anxiety is the what if or the before thing. And not always, but... 99% of the time, actually, when I go through with it, it's a lot better than I anticipate or it's nothing like 
what I'd anticipated, but it is definitely the the thought of what if what if is the is the chip on my shoulder, I think, or the devil, whatever you call them, yeah. the inner critic. It's that voice just saying constantly, what if this happens? What if that happens? What about that? What about that? And I run away to six hours down the line of where that's happened and something else has happened and something else has happened. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's interesting the the parallels I'm drawing in my head from a previous podcast guest, um, Clara. She did an episode with us on autism and she used to have a lot of similar experiences, like would be really overwhelmed by like crowds, um, not just in them being a crowd, but also like she'd find the noise really overstimulating. Yeah. And it would really take up a huge amount of her focus. Yeah. Um, and she'd have these constant kind of what ifs about certain situations, particularly stuff in the future of, you know, a certain trip or certain events. Absolutely. Um, and I used to often just find myself, she'd be like, oh, what if this? And I'm like, what if everything's fine? And sometimes that would be enough to sort of stop her in yeah, my tracks and be like, oh. That. But a lot of the time, you know, you have to, it's like we talked about in an episode about anxiety. Often as, you know, a friend or a family member, you have to, enter into it to a certain extent yeah. and be like okay well tell me what you're thinking and then you take it apart and try and deconstruct it with them yeah, yeah, yeah. because as much as the instinct is to be it'll be fine everything's fine yes. everything's good it's when your mind is screaming the complete opposite yeah me saying that can just sound just, like white noise yeah 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 absolutely and it also I think it just frustrates you because you just think they're not really understanding where you're coming from um, yeah, it's about and, listening. Yeah, it? yeah, that's it, absolutely. Um, but I think you're right, I think getting involved in it and trying to deconstruct it. But it is a good point. I've never actually thought about that before, as in, <laughs> what if everything is okay? <laughs> I might have that um, written down to my mind. Because this is the last one, yeah, that just goes, what if, though, everything does turn out okay? Um, yeah, that's a good, I like that. <laughs> And so I know you're quite keen to talk about our campaign as well. Yeah. So we'll get into that in a minute. Do you have before that like a top tip on people dealing with borderline personality disorder, something you found really useful in coping with that? I think even though it's been blogging that's helped me, it's not really been the act of blogging, it's been the act of writing down. So before I started mm-hmm. that, it was the writing down in a journal of just emptying out my head and... I think that feeling of just, there's so much in there at times, like we said before about it being like the M25 and there's Mm -hmm. a million things. And generally lots of it doesn't connect with each other. It's totally different. So just writing stuff down. And I think that's what I've learned for me. The biggest tip is just to get the information that's in there out. And sometimes that's by venting it with Mm -hmm my friend that pops around for a cup of tea and sometimes it's by writing it and sometimes it's by writing a whole blog but knowing I can never publish it because it says too many things about people that might not be great but once I've written it I do feel so much better for just getting the information out of my head yeah um yeah so that'd be my top tip just trying to empty your brain I love that that makes so much sense and particularly when writing it down it can highlight those inconsistencies. And yeah. It, it puts it in a physical form that you can kind of push away. Then. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that some of the blogs I can even see now, sometimes I'm very careful with them. 
and I'll save them and edit them and do whatever. But sometimes I do just genuinely write what I'm thinking and send it and I'll read it back maybe even two or three days later and think that makes no sense at all. And how has anybody commented on that? Because it, But it felt really good at the time and it was what I needed it for, which was just to vent and to be sort of emptying of my brain. So, yeah. Grand. All right. And so then in terms of our campaign, so you've been yeah. quite active which is to get mental health on the school curriculum for all schools in the UK. And so, yeah, I'd love to, like, you wanted to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I've got two daughters, um, 8 and 11. So Mm -hmm. one's just about to start secondary school. um, And I am very passionate about the fact that they need to be educated, not just because of the fact that their mum is going through this. I think what's important is the difference between mental Um, health and mental illness and the fact that everyone has mental health so I want to encourage them to have mental health awareness so they know when they're feeling good or they learn so much about healthy eating at school nowadays and both of my daughters one refuses to eat healthily at all (laughs) (laughs) when we try I was that child yes (laughs) and the other one um makes the distinction of I've had too many sweets now I'm going to save those I haven't had any fruit today I'm going to have an extra piece of fruit but they're both very aware of the decisions that they're making and the impact that that has on their bodies and their health Mm -hmm. as much as they can at their age with regards to mental health I don't think they had um until I started doing some activities with them they had absolutely no concept that why did I want them to play out in the garden more than sitting on their tablets why did um I want them to be involved in an out-of-school club that at the moment they do karate, which they really enjoy. Um, but they, for me, it was about not getting them out of the house for an hour or um, getting square eyes from the telly. It was about what they would learn and how that would impact their health in a more general sense. So I just think it's really important that mental health is health. Yeah. And so it should just be the same as talking about healthy eating at school when they look at calories and when they're looking at sugar content in sweets and pop and when they're looking at PS. We used to have PSE when I was at school, which was, I um, can't even remember what it stood for, um, personal and social education. I believe so. And it was basically sex education, really, like, very simply. But to me... We talk about contraception and we talk about all those kind of things and now this talking to them about alcohol, it doesn't make them do it anymore or stop them doing it anymore, but it gives them the information and I think that's got to be age appropriate, obviously. But I think in the petition it mentions about Romeo and Juliet and I remember doing that at school. Mm-hmm. Two people kill themselves and then you have to write an essay on it and then you just left to... Nobody actually really talks about the fact that they've ended their own lives because they weren't happy. Yeah. And, and think, that's something I only thought about years later because it just no, wasn't covered at all. No, no, so it never, never even occurred to me that it was suicide because no, I, I never, was so I, young. It wasn't until I read your um, the aspect of it in the petition that I considered it as suicide. It was just part of the play, even when I've watched the film, read the books, mm-hmm. and I did it at um, college as well as school. And yeah, I just never really looked at it as suicide. Um, Two years ago, sadly, my um, best friend um, committed suicide, took her own life. And it wasn't until then um, that I'd even really thought about it, even with mental health. I'd always just thought there's that bit that stops you or stops my friends or I'd always spot the signs. Yeah, well, it's one of those odd things where it's it's always some 
thing that happens to someone else yeah until absolutely it isn't. yeah until it isn't and then and so that's then again why I'm so passionate about it being involved in education because both my daughters were she was a family friend so she was anti Kirsty um and she was brilliant she was the funniest she'd always had mental health issues but that's why we got on that's why we got on so well but you know what I mean we had that connection you had that in common and um they trying to explain to an eight and eleven year old who've lost grandparents and things I'd always gone down the route of they were ill and yeah. there was a reason and there was a purpose and suddenly I had to sit them down and say your 32 year old friend who's the same age as mummy isn't here anymore well she wasn't ill we saw her last week what and that conversation and realized they have absolutely no understanding and then they've gone on to draw from that that if I've got a similar mental health issue, that must be what's going to happen to mommy at some point. So they then have another load of worries on their shoulders. Yeah, and that's interesting because we've had some commentary of that on the petition that some people are trying to decide whether it's, you know, school responsibility or parent responsibility. My perspective is very much it's both. Yeah, absolutely. But um, we don't have a way to to have parents systematically or talk about this whereas we do have that yeah absolutely and i think that's that starts a lot of conversations off for parents yeah because right now without that that's a lot of responsibility on you because you are the then the only authority in their life yeah to educate them on that which is is really tough it is definitely and i think um the school have been very good with my children Mm. and are very aware and i'm working with three other schools and I've got my first one that I'm going into in September um, in Sheffield to speak very briefly of, um, about mental well-being. So we've, I've not got any formal training in this. This is me just going in and talking about my story okay. with the 15 and 16 year olds. And I guess it's a learning curve for the school, but also for me to just see how that would work. Because for me, it's really important that we start getting this message out somehow and when there are schools approaching me saying, we'd love you to come in and talk to us about things, I want to do it. But in that meantime, I've got some meetings booked in with my CPN so that I've got the right kind of um, preparation in place yeah. before I do that. But for me, yeah, it's just it's it's probably the top of my um, wanting to achieve things is to get it into schools and with young people. Yeah, um, me too. Yeah, I just think that's the most important thing because I think... Although it was a very different world 20 years ago, I think that if I'd have had some awareness around it, whether with it being school or parents, it wouldn't have taken 20 years to be diagnosed and then been another two-year waiting list. I could have been having support and that encouragement or even the awareness that I've got that's helping me to cope day to day now, um, 20 years ago, if I'd have had something in the school system to help me around Absolutely. And so just I'll add to kind of round up on that, you know, our perspective with the campaign is very much um, try and get this onto uh, PSHE. And there is already optional modules as part of PSHE, which mm-hmm. some schools do teach around mental health. And so it's not so far off that no, it can be achieved. Absolutely. And initial progress is being made. And so obviously at the end of the episode, I pushed the campaign in the link to it. Yeah, so you can listen to the end and get that there and take a look. But also, um, Sarah was brilliant in helping get her local MP on board. Yes. So if anyone listening 
thinks this would be a subject of interest for their MP, um, you can email us at mentalpodcast at icloud.com and we'll give you all the information and a standard letter that you can just pretty much put your name to um, and support us in, in making this happen, really. Yeah, so then we'll just finish up with you then. You mentioned already your blog. Yeah, so my blog is at thereisthinkingagain.blog and yeah, some days it's a great, happy blog and other days it's exactly the opposite and it's the exact mood swings that I'm going through. Um, but more recently I've been trying to talk about tools that I use. Mm-hmm. So rather than just venting, although there is still a lot of that, um, things that I've been slowly using, so a DBT book that I've been using whilst I'm waiting for therapy and things like that, and how I've spoken to my own children there's three or four blogs about how I speak to my children and how I talk to them about mental health because I think it's so important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. so if you want to learn more about Sarah, do check out her blog. Um, we'll put the links in the description as well. And uh, yeah, definitely would recommend it if you've related to any of her story or experience or just to learn more about her. Also, a little while back when we started the podcast, you did an interview with me yeah and so that's on there so if you want to kind of go back and see where the podcast started and what a lot of my aims were with it you can go and read that yeah <laughs> hopefully time has treated it well and we're yes. still staying consistent <laughs> um but yeah so that's everything we have time for all right um, thank, you. thank you so much for being on the show today no, thank you <laughs> great As you know, we've been running a petition to get mental health education on the curriculum for all schools in the UK. The response so far has been incredible. And at the moment, we are closing in on 100,000 signatures, which is amazing. And it's been so brilliant to see people really showing up for mental health in this way. And if we get to 100,000 signatures, we can have this debated in Parliament. The progress has already been really great. So at the moment, you can read more about this on the petition page. But in very brief summary, the Department for Education has put forward initial outlines on how to make this happen. At the moment, that is in the public consultation stage. So everything is still to pay for. Nothing is finalised or decided. So we really need to push as much as we can to make sure these changes go far enough and include the core aims of the petition. So what we're asking is for one more big push from you guys to get us to that 100k mark so we can get the debate in Parliament, keep the momentum going on this. You can support it by visiting bit.ly slash mental petition and there you can share it ideally on all your social media or email it, be retro, write it in a letter, whatever you want. Even just load it up on your phone, hand it to a friend, get them to sign it. Every signature counts at this stage and it would just be so incredible if we can make this happen and support the mental health of generations to come so they can grow up with far less stigma, far more knowledge than we did. That would just be magic. So thank you so much for all the support so far. Thank you for the support to come.
Thank you for listening. For a list of our recommended resources, visit mentorpodcast.co.uk. And remember, we are in no way a substitute for qualified counselling or other mental health support. Our show is edited and produced by the brilliant Pete Murta with licensed music by NetSky. Links in the description. Speak to you next Thursday. And remember, you are enough.